Gentlemen, welcome to the Mikulin. I am Paul Rousset, beginner, the house manager. Hi. Right. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. How do you do? Anything that you need, please find me. Thank you. Certainly. So, what is the actual difference between a Hutu and a Tutsi? According to the Belgian colonists, the Tutsis are taller, are more elegant. It was the Belgians that created the division. Oh. They picked people, uh, those with uh, thinner noses, lighter skin. They used to measure the width of people's noses. The Belgians used the Tutsis to run the country. Then when they left, they left the power to the Hutus. And of course, the Hutus took a revenge on the elite Tutsis for years of repression. Am I telling the truth, Paul? Yes, unfortunately. Please take this to the general. Benedict is our finest journalist in Kigali, an expert on the subject. So what are you, Paul? I am Hutu. Gentlemen. More champagne? More champagne would be nice. Thank you. Thanks. Excuse me, honey. Can I ask you a personal question? Are you a Hutu or a Tutsi? I am Tutsi. And your friend, Tutsi? No, I'm Hutu. They could be twins. George Tabunda is a bad man. I've heard him on the radio telling the Hutus to kill all the Tutsis. Brutagunda and his people, they are fools, Dube. Their time is soon over. Anyway, this is business. It's the Interhammer. Do as they say, pull over. Sit up. Smile, Dubey. Don't attract attention to yourself. Some of these men are my neighbors. They know that I'm Tutsi. Just smile as if they are friends, Dubey. No, no, hey. Yes. I want you to think the last time in your life you experienced the sensation where you felt like the circumstances around you made you feel out of control. That, that whatever was going on, you just felt like your hands were off the wheel and whatever was going to happen was going to happen regardless of anything you did. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. I mean, I think of my, uh, when I became a father for the first time, uh, our firstborn child five years ago, five years ago, um, you know, obviously being first-time parents, there's a lot of confusion that goes along with that, but we really thought we were prepared. We had a plan, you know, we, we went to all the classes, we read all the books, my wife read all the books. Um, we talked to friends who had been having kids, and we, we had a plan, we had a bag, we were ready to go. But then you get to the day of, and the hours keep creeping by longer and longer and later and later, and uh, hospital staff keep shifting in and out, and they, they tell you you've met them before, but you're not really sure you have. And then it gets later into the night, and at a certain point, I remember thinking, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And I wasn't even the one having the kid. You know, my wife was probably thinking, yeah, it's really hard on you, Eli. Oh, man. But what was that like for you? I mean, a situation in your life where you felt 
out of control. And the more I read the, the New Testament accounts of the days and weeks after Jesus' resurrection, that's more the sense I get. A, a time of profound confusion and uncertainty of what was really going on. Word was spreading by, you know, word of mouth slowly. Last weekend, we got to experience Easter together as a church, and it was amazing, this, this joy-filled time of celebration, and, and it was awesome to worship with all of you. And uh, we, you know, we grieve on Good Friday, but we, we turn the page really quickly because we know how the story goes. We know that Jesus is alive, and we can celebrate, and we're ready for the party. But, but the disciples didn't have that ability. They didn't have that communication. They, 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 it, was, it was, you know, Mary and the women saw Jesus at the tomb, but Mary didn't recognize him. And she tells Peter and John, and they rush to the tomb, but, but they, also, they only see the empty grave and the grave clothes. And, and it says Peter goes home and wonders about these things. And Jesus appears to a couple of people here, and they don't even recognize him. It was this slow, unfolding process of communication with a lot of confusion attached to it. And even if they weren't in a place to, to celebrate, even if they knew Jesus was alive for sure right away when it happened, that just wasn't where their head was at. They weren't in a, in a mental space where they were thinking about celebration or, or having an Easter party that wasn't on their radar. In the Jewish community, in the Jewish faith, there's actually a prescribed system for how to grieve when somebody important to you has died, a family member or, in the disciples' case, their, their friend, teacher, rabbi, the Messiah, son of God, and, and, and they would, um, in a prescriptive sort of way, have this system for grief called sitting shiva. And that's what the disciples would have been doing at this time. They stay in Jerusalem, they're in a room by themselves, and they are doing this, this ancient process of, of actually grieving. And, and in our Western culture, we have the stages of grief, five or seven stages of grief that you go through when something tragic happens. It comes from this ancient tradition. And uh, it starts off in the book of Job. So in Job, one of the oldest books of the Old Testament, it's the story of a man who has lost everything, suffered tremendous tragedy. He's lost his family. His, uh, his property, his house, his livestock, his physical health, he's lost it all. And the whole book is about his process of, of grieving and, and working it out with God, how, how suffering really happens. And, and this is what happens in, in chapter 2. Early on in the story, his friends are coming to comfort him. And they say when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. And it's actually here where we meet Jesus' disciples after Jesus' death. It says they're meeting in a room together, and, and, and in John chapter 20, that's where we're going to be this morning, so if you, have, if you have your Bibles, you can open to John chapter 20. We're going to dive into this story. We're finishing up a message series on the book of John through the month of April, and it says that 10 of the disciples were in a room together meeting. Judas, because of his grief, had actually gone off and committed suicide, and then it tells us that Thomas wasn't actually there. Now, there are two stages of grief in, in sitting Shiva that are important to the, the way this is laid out. And the first one you see in the book of Job where it says they tore their clothes and they threw ashes and covered themselves in dust. And, and other parts in the Bible you read about people covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And this was the first stage of grief in Shiva called Anunit where you were actually expected to, encouraged to express your great anger and your frustration over what's happened. Now, that's an important first step in the grieving process, to be angry that something tragic has happened, to doubt, to even go through the stage of denial. 
to, to openly express it. It was healthy to do. And then once you got past that initial first stage of grief, you would then gather with your community, and for seven days and seven nights, you would sit Shiva together mourning in your community. So we see 10 of the disciples are doing that. They have moved on past the initial shock. It's Sunday night, so two day, three days have passed, and they're sitting together, and they're grieving together as a community, but Thomas isn't with them. And, and the author, John, is actually giving us a lot of clues about who Thomas was. And he, anytime you're reading the Bible, just remember that it's way too old for them to have wasted time and paper on extra details that don't mean anything. There's no fluff in the Bible. They didn't have time for that. So them saying, John saying that John, uh, Thomas wasn't with them is an important detail. It's telling us something about Thomas's character. And Jesus appears to these disciples and, and he says, peace be with you. He teaches them a lesson. He eats a meal with them. And Thomas isn't there, so the disciples go and find Thomas, wherever he was, and they say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas's response is this, I won't believe it. I won't believe it. Not, not I can't believe it. Not that's unbelievable, wow, or, or I don't want to. It's I, I won't believe what you're telling me. Thomas is still in this stage of, of denial. And even the Greek there says, ume epistoso, I will not believe what you're telling me. He, he's still denying. He's still probably in this anger, frustration, anunit period of, of grief. He hasn't gotten to where the other disciples had, where he's ready to be with them in community. He's still off on his own expressing the, the, the visceral parts of this grieving process, refusing to believe that what they're telling him is true. And John has actually given other clues in, in this gospel about Thomas's character, that he might not be the type of person that gets over things very quickly. Other times in the gospel where we meet Thomas, and this is interesting because there, you know, there are some disciples we don't know anything about. One of the Judases and Bartholomew and Nathaniel, we don't know what they were like and what they did. Thomas gets some, some coverage here. The first time we meet him in John chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples are about to go to Bethany where Lazarus has died. And you can go back on our podcast, Pastor Scott preached about this a few weeks ago. They were already concerned that people might be trying to kill them. And so they didn't want to travel too closely to Jerusalem because they were afraid that religious leaders and Roman soldiers would be after them. And when Jesus finally says, we're going to go to Bethany, Thomas, nobody else, Thomas pipes up and said, uh, nicknamed the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Let's go and die with Jesus. And you can kind of picture the other disciples being like, all right, calm down. Later in the, in the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus is actually teaching about what's about to happen. He's preparing his disciples for his death and sharing with them that I'm going to leave you for a time. And he says, where, you, where I'm going, you can't come, but you do know the way. And Thomas, nobody else, pipes up and says, no, we don't, Lord. Thomas said, we have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? And these little clues that John is giving about this guy's personality show us uh, uh, the character of somebody who, who isn't ready to get over the shock of what has happened, that his friend, his, his Lord, his Savior, his Messiah, his leader has been brutally murdered, and people might be coming to kill them next, and he's not ready to move on yet. And I wonder if maybe you can relate to that. In the grieving process, an, an inability to get past the initial shock and anger and frustration of what you've been through. And that's what the Bible is exploring in this moment. John actually gives another clue to what Thomas is like, and it's actually in his nickname. So uh, Thomas nicknamed the twin, and uh, you'll see this at other times. Some of the other disciples had nicknames. In, in some translations, it still uses the original Greek. It'll call him Thomas Didymus. 
That's just the Greek for a twin, uh, and, and it's a clue. So um, there are scholars who you know, write about all this stuff, like how the ancients perceived twins in the ancient world, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, Glenn Most writes about this a lot related to, to Thomas's character and, and who he was as a person. Um, but in the ancient world, they actually viewed twins as a little bit suspicious. Maybe if you have a twin, you, you relate. I don't know. But, but they didn't know. They had no idea. They didn't understand how twins happened. They didn't have the science there. They understood a woman was pregnant. And then when she delivered twins, they really didn't understand why that was happening or how that was happening. There was, it did happen, but there was the thought that maybe the mother was cursed, like God cursed her somehow because uh, the mortality rate in the ancient world for birthing twins was way, way up there. They, they thought that you know, the, the older twin had an identity, like that was the child who came first and we get that. The, the second born, who is usually named the twin, because you would name the second one the twin of the older one, they kind of lacked an identity. They didn't really fit in in the culture. It, it was a weird sort of thing. And uh, this is meant to, to call our, to our minds the, the first twins we encounter in the Bible. So in the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau are the twin sons of Rebekah and Isaac. And in that story in Genesis, you read about how those two brothers even fought inside the womb. And, and they, if you got brothers, I don't think you need to be twins to know that. Uh, and when they came out, Jacob was holding on to Esau's ankle, is what the Bible says. And they, they fought throughout their life, and Jacob deceived Esau, and he lied to his father. And so the, the stigma around a younger set of twins was interesting, and John is using that nickname. This is just who Thomas was. He was an interesting, fiery, passionate sort of person who wouldn't believe, who refused to believe what the other disciples were telling them about Jesus. Because again, this was a massively confusing time. Other people were seeing Jesus and there were these small reports popping up and I saw him and so, so-and-so saw him and Thomas just isn't there yet. Now I know it, can, it, it seems strange to us to think how silly for the ancient people to believe that having twins was a curse and we know better now and I, I don't know how twins happen, but we, we understand the science behind it and it's not a surprise and, and things like that. But... If you really look at places in our culture, we still carry over these types of prejudices that have no rational background to them. Things that, dualities that we, we have in our, in our culture, in human relationships that for no reason whatsoever we find frustrating and, and full of, of prejudice. The, the film clip we watched to start this time was from the movie Hotel Rwanda, and in that movie, it explores what happened in the early 90s in Rwanda, in Central Africa, around the, the conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And you saw in the clip, as they're kind of setting the background there, that there actually were no uh, ethnic differences between this two, these two groups of people. They came from the same ancestral family tree. They could have been twins. There was nothing different between them. What actually happened was during colonialism, they were separated into two groups based on physical characteristics and then divided up based on social class. It was almost like a caste system and not so much an ethnic conflict. And so there, were, there was hundreds of years of civil war and strife that was propagated by colonialism, a civil war that had finally ended, sort of, in the early 90s, and they were ready to broker peace in 1994 when the Hutu president's plane was actually shot down, and they don't know, they suspect that it was actually Hutu rebels who shot down their own president's plane to be able to initiate, in April of 1994, 100 days of massive genocide where almost a million Tutsis were killed by their neighbors. 
somebody living right next door, and, and they use the radio to actually give instructions and, and to promote this massive amount of violence in their country for no other reason than this perceived difference and prejudice that came almost from out of nowhere. Now, I want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer. We're going to show a clip in a little bit, um, and I know that we have young ones here, and I don't want it to be a scary thing. There is a gun, but there's no overt violence in this clip. And we're not sh- I'm not talking about these things to be shocking or to be grotesque. We're not going to show any gory images and things like that. That's not the point of this. The reason we want to talk about things like this, especially related to our faith in Jesus, is because we still live in a time where yesterday somebody can open fire in a synagogue and somebody will die. Not six months removed from when the same thing happened in Pittsburgh, or a month ago when uh, Muslim worshipers were shot in New Zealand, or last week on Easter Sunday when Christians were blown up in Sri Lanka and 250 people plus died. The world we live in is this type of world still where our prejudices and our inability to love people the way that Jesus calls us to love continues to promote hate and violence. And so that's why we want to explore these things and talk about them instead of just ignoring them. It'd be really easy to ignore a lot of the things that happen in this world and go on as if everything's just okay. And that's the character in, in the film, what he was trying to do. Paul Rasasagabina, who I'm sure I'm still pronouncing his name wrong, uh, an amazing true story of a real person who lived. He, he was a, a hotel manager of a four-star hotel, and he wanted business to go on just as usual. He was unwilling to believe that this is actually what was happening to his country that he loved. He didn't care about Hutus and Tutsi divisions. He had friends on both sides. His wife was a Tutsi. He just wanted his country to be healthy, to be restored, to continue to grow. And, and so in this movie, you see a person who, like Thomas, is refusing to believe that this is actually happening, that this is what the world is really like. Now, we, we can't know for sure what Thomas was actually thinking, actually feeling. We have these clues that John gives us, this picture that he paints of of somebody who, in his refusal to believe, is is simply not willing to move forward through the grieving process. And and so I want you to try to put yourself in the position of somebody who has lost their their life, the last three years of their life, to to tragedy, to murder, not knowing if you're going to be the one they come after next. And then let's watch this clip together.
thousand francs for each. Sir, I don't have that much. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. It's a thousand. A thousand US. Enter. Yeah. Fifty thousand francs for my wife and children. Take. Take them. Sir, I have more money actually. And let them give you something, some money, whatever they have. All right? Here you are. Give me everything you have. This is enough for one cockroach. Pick one. Sir, I will give you a hundred thousand francs for all of them. Give me it. I don't have it here. At the Mikulin, I can get it for you. You'll run into the hotel and hide behind the UN. Sir, I swear, one hundred thousand francs. I will get you the money. You keep them outside. Please, sir. Please. Let's go. Okay. Everyone in the Come on. So during that 100-day conflict where there was very little, if, if any, outside foreign support for what was happening internally, Paul Rosasagabina actually was able to hide and save the lives of 1,200 Tutsi refugees. Uh, among the 800,000 or so who were eventually killed, he was able to save at least that many. And when I think about the, what, the, what kind of courage and conviction it took for him to, to stand up in the face of such violence, I see in that story a picture of what Jesus has done for all of us. That, that here we are in this world and in our life, running for our lives, scared of, of the eventuality of what might happen uh, when we lose our own life. And, and here is Jesus who breaks into this world and says, what will I have to pay so that this doesn't happen to you? And Jesus pays his life, gives his life for our life, dies his death for our death in a place that we should have stood. It would be a mistake for us to, to turn the page too quickly from Good Friday, not to keep looking at what actually happened there. Because again, that's not what the disciples weren't able to move past it very quickly. They were still in a place where they were having to wrestle with and reconcile what actually happened on the cross. That it was Jesus' death on the cross that has paid the penalty for our sin. That it was the blood that he shed that actually purchased our lives for all of eternity for everyone who has faith in him. And so the disciples kept looking at this, kept staring at us. And it's, it's the reason why when Jesus appears to his disciples that he actually is so adamant about showing off his, his physical wounds and the scars that are in his hands and in his side, saying, Put, touch, my, touch my hands and feel the scars that are on my body so that you will know that I'm actually physically still alive. Not just still, but that I physically died and now I am physically alive again. And this was an important, critical moment for the history of the church. You know, it would be really easy if, if Jesus didn't come back to life. That would be so much easier for the disciples, for us. If Jesus had simply uh, stayed dead and we, all we had were the teachings of a religious leader, then we could follow those ethically, morally, and go on with our lives. But because Jesus has actually raised from the dead, that changes how we approach other people. 
that changes how we treat people in the world around us. So it ends up giving us a letter like Paul's in the New Testament where they were still struggling with this idea. Did Jesus really rise from the dead or was it all just a myth or, or did he, did he you know, faint and get better? And the early church really struggled with this. So uh, there's a slide on the screen with um, uh, verses from the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians, you can go to that slide, please, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it says this. So this is Paul writing to the church who, again, are still struggling with this reality of Jesus' authentic resurrection. And it said, Jesus died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. And then it says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. That this is the critical piece of the story of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, paying the penalty for our sins, but the victory that he has over death, which means victory over death for each and every one of us. And again, there's a big jump in John between believing that something happened, the physical evidence that Jesus raised from the dead, and believing in Christ, in the power of Jesus Christ. We read this in John chapter 20. I'll read it again, verse 31. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. If, if, if all we ever get to is a place where we believe that something happened, that Jesus did something for us, that's a different place to be than to say, I believe in what Jesus has done, and believe, because I believe in what Jesus has done, my life is filled with the power to do the things that Jesus calls us to do, to live a different kind of life, to treat people differently than I would have before. To believe in Jesus Christ means to believe that his death on the cross was for the people who put him there. The, the, the Roman who nailed him to the cross, the Jewish leader who falsely accused him, that's what it means to believe in Christ, is that power to forgive is for everybody. And so later on in church history, when Peter, who has actually experienced all these things, is writing his own letter in, in the book of 1 Peter, it'll be on the next slide here, it says this, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to our sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. And so Jesus appears to his disciples, and he, and he, he, he tells them, peace be with you. But then he actually teaches them the first lesson after his resurrection, Almost this, here's what I want you to know now that I'm alive. And this is, what he, this is the first thing he tells his disciples. Let's read this together from John 20. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, why would Jesus teach the very first thing he tells his disciples after the resurrection? Forgive people. Forgive people. It's because believing in Christ means that forgiveness is available to everybody, even the people you might not like, even the people who might be pursuing you, trying to kill you, even the people who killed me, forgiveness is for them too. And I wonder if that's what Thomas didn't want to believe, at least part of it. When, when the disciples find Thomas, we've found, we've seen the Lord and he's alive and he's taught us about forgiveness and Thomas still in his anguish and his anger and his frustration, there's no way he wants to forgive the people who have done that to him. 
There's no way he wants to believe in Christ, be faithful to the call of Jesus to live a different kind of life, a loving life, a forgiving life. How can that possibly be? I want to stay angry. I don't want to forgive other people. But believing in Christ calls us to live differently. So in the years since the Rwandan genocide in 1994, uh, a number of historians and authors have done a lot of research where they've investigated how the, the country has actually recovered from what has happened. And, and actually the, the tremendous progress Rwanda has made to becoming a healthier nation, it's quite extraordinary actually. And one of those writers, uh, a man named Philip Gravich, has written about it, uh, and he gave a radio interview a few months ago that I want you to listen to, because in this interview, he describes what he has seen in the process of, of Rwandans' forgiveness for their neighbors, and how that has helped promote peace in their country. Let's take a look. In Rwanda, there was the feeling, but no, there was a lot of agency in the local level, and the experience of the genocide was extremely localized. People were killed by neighbors. It was intimate, they knew each other. Mm. And to simply ignore that wouldn't work. So they set up a system of community courts without lawyers to sort of repurpose a system that really had only been used for small claims mitigation in traditional Rwanda called gachacha and have open communal, what we might call a town hall format for trials. And then the idea was to hold people accountable and have a, a system of punishment. And this system banked very heavily on encouraging confession and rewarding it. But confessions were supposed to be also verified by the community. And so the motto of the Gachacha courts was truth heals. But as we know, truth can also be really traumatizing. And in this case, re-traumatizing. Because to go from the idea that that person is the killer of my family and I want him to answer for it, to then hearing him describe in quite gory detail and often quite coarsely how he'd gone about killing, let's say, your family members, and at that moment be asked to accept and forgive him. That's an awful lot to ask at that moment. But what's interesting to me, too, is what does forgiveness mean? I mean, to some extent, when I went and I heard the word forgiveness, I thought it sort of meant you'd restore whatever the relationship was before. Yeah. And they would say, no, that involves trust. <laughs> That's a whole different thing. Forgiveness doesn't require trust. Forgiveness simply means letting go of the idea of getting even, foregoing the idea of revenge, hmm. right? Now, even that's a big ask, but it means accepting coexistence. Right. They would say, but you know, in general, in society, things are much better. I started to hear this, especially towards the end of Gachacha and in the years since. I took that as a very interesting thing, saying, well, you know, my pains are not gone. <laughs> my struggles are not over. But the general balance is good. And that means that they felt like something had been gained even if they themselves were not fully at peace. In other words, that the societal peace had been served maybe better than any given individual peace. There's a, a cliche that we have centered around forgiveness in our culture that I think is um, at the very least unhelpful. You probably heard it, um, that forgiveness means forgetting, that you should just forgive and forget whatever wrong has been done to you, whatever wound you've experienced, whatever hurt somebody else has caused you or you have caused you, that forgiveness just means forgetting it, ignoring it. And I actually don't see that when I look at the life of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Jesus offers forgiveness, but then he says, remember what it took to forgive you. 
look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. That, that even in his resurrected body, the scars of your forgiveness still exist on Jesus' physical body right now. Jesus physically ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he still has holes in his hands and his feet and in his side as, as an eternal reminder of the forgiveness that he chose for you. And so in your life, maybe you've got scars in your life. Perhaps you have wounds caused by other people or yourself. And you're struggling to find where does forgiveness fit in the picture of my recovery and my healing and can I really forgive other people and can I really forgive myself for the things that have happened. It doesn't mean forgetting it. It doesn't mean just dismissing it, pretending like it didn't happen. Last week, Pastor Scott, when he was talking about the reality of restoration, means that it, it's not like it was before. Your restored life, the, the life of your healing is, is forever changed. And you might always carry the scars of the wounds that have happened to you and in your life, but what the power of believing in Jesus Christ means is that you have the power to forgive other people for what has happened to you. You have the power to forgive yourself or to forgive God for the things that have happened to you. And to let that be the place where your healing truly begins. And your new life in the power of Jesus Christ can transform the entire world around you. So we're going to sing one more song that's about this idea as we close our time, choosing to praise God in the midst of whatever we're going through. So let's stand together and sing this last song.